الجزيرة بودكاست. Hi, Malika here. Today we're bringing you a story on Pakistan, a country that's barely contributed to climate change, but is paying the price for its effects. Here's Hala Mohyeddin. They were the worst floods Pakistan has ever seen. Torrential rains have led to flooding. Villages have been submerged. Farmlands destroyed. Survivors describe what is happening in Pakistan as the end of days. Last year's floods killed more than 1,700 people and displaced millions. A third of the country was underwater, an area the size of the United Kingdom. The science is clear. Flooding this catastrophic is fueled by climate change. And as aid efforts fall short, Pakistan has been left in the wake. I'm Halamahiyuddin, and this is The Take. There was water everywhere. That's Zuha Siddiqui. She's a Pakistani journalist who covers climate, including last year's floods. I'm from Karachi, which is a coastal city. It's by the sea. And Zuha told us she found herself reminded of Karachi's open coastline when she went to a city called Dadu last summer. It's near the Indus River, but nowhere near the sea. I could see waves lapping, like that's how much the water was, right? We were in a boat and all we could see were the tops of trees, you know, like the roof of an occasional house peeping through, carcasses of dead livestock. Dadu and Karachi are both in Sindh, the province where people were hit hardest by the floods. We have recovered dead bodies. One woman was lying on the road for two hours, but there was no help for her. There was no ambulance. We Sindhis are human beings, aren't we? The Indus River, which bursts its banks in Sindh, is about 3,000 kilometers long and winds up the length of Pakistan to its headwaters in the Himalayas. And up in the north, similar scenes played out. This is Taimur Jagra, the former health and finance minister of a mountainous province called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. So in the Swat Valley, which is known also as the Switzerland of Pakistan, you may have seen some of these horrific videos of torrents of water actually washing away uh, hotels along the riverbed. The sort of pictures of shock and awe that actually make your eyes go open. In the Peshawar Valley, where I saw the impact of the floods firsthand, the Overflow of floodwaters into populated area basically displace hundreds of thousands. What it means is your houses get inundated with feet or meters of water. You have to leave your possessions. Your houses likely get destroyed. Your crops get destroyed. And what was heart-wrenching was to see the number of people being impacted. Zuha says there's one particular video she saw from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa that she'll never forget. It was basically this family had built this sort of makeshift bridge by throwing ropes 
from like one side of the street to the other. The street was like a river, right? Like water gushing through. And so they had thrown ropes from one side to the other and they were trying to cross by holding on to those ropes. And there was a moment in that video where a kid like almost slipped and fell. And then somebody was able to sort of fish him out of the water. It was so horrific. But six months on from the worst of the floods, the situation has hardly changed. The emergency phase is not over and the humanitarian response has not scaled up nearly enough to meet the needs of the population right now. That's Ed Taylor. He's an emergency response coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. He's based in Sindh. He arrived back in November, but he says in the four months since then, hardly anything has changed. The flood water is still very much there. What we're seeing when we're out on the ground is, you know, more stagnant water now that's just not shifting, it's not moving. The soil is uh, quite heavy, uh, which makes the drainage of the water really, really challenging. I mean, it's challenging a word that, that, that springs to mind when you think about how Pakistan has been since those massive, massive floods. Can you just paint a picture for us of what, it looks like right now, because the images at the time was of buildings being washed away, infrastructure being washed away. It sounds like the situation is still pretty bad in Sindh. To paint a picture, you're right. People are now returning back to their houses, but you know, finding that their houses are, are you know completely damaged. You see these sort of makeshift shelters. Uh, people are sort of you know getting by with plastic sheeting and trying to repair their lives. The need for durable shelter is overwhelming in a country still grappling with an enormous rebuilding effort. We're still seeing a lot of displacement. So where villages are now still not accessible, um, you're still seeing displacement along the side of the road. You talked about the standing flood water that's still there and, you know, the topography of the land means that it perhaps can't clear away as quickly. But just remind us of the, some of the medical challenges that that leaves behind. You know, now communities are, are facing the choice of moving back to their village, but living in close proximity to this water. We're seeing 50% positivity in malaria. This was even the case in the winter months in Sindh, something Ed says was particularly alarming. It's very strange because, you know, it's the coldest part of the year in this area. And, you know, you would anticipate that the malaria season would have finished by now. Zuha says malaria is something she's also seen a lot of. I spoke to a source who said, you know, I've contracted malaria thrice. He contracted malaria when the floods first came in August and the water didn't drain. And so he contracted it again in September. And then a third time when I was speaking to him in October. And so you can imagine the impact that it must have had on his body, right? I mean, for a healthy person, malaria is so difficult. I've never contracted it. And I, quite frankly speaking, can't imagine what it must be like to contract it three times consecutively, one after the other. Zuha says it's not just the floods that have caused major damage to the country's farmland. It's also extreme weather. 2022 was a landmark year for Pakistan because we saw astronomical levels of heat the beginning of the year. So in March, we saw astronomical levels of heat in cities like Jacobabad in Sindh. A city in southern Pakistan recorded the highest temperature in South Asia so far this year. 
51 degrees Celsius in Jacobabad. And those very cities were then flooded in August, September. So you can imagine the amount of food insecurity places like Sindh are facing, right? As a consequence of the heat waves first and then floods. The Indus River has been flooding for as long as people have lived there. That's part of what made Sindh a perfect region to grow food. But over the years, that flooding has grown more and more intense. And Pakistanis already know the land will not provide as it once did. There were sources I spoke to who said that after the 2010-2011 floods, it took years for the ground to dry, right? Now you have to understand for a crop like wheat or cotton, the ground can't be, you know, there's, there's a word in Urdu called nami, which is basically moisture, right? So if the ground is moist, the crop won't grow, you know? And so the ground has to dry out. And if these towns and villages are inundated up until October, November, December, it's going to take years for the ground to dry. You know, in this area, it's, it's heavily dependent on agriculture. Community's you know, main source of livelihood is, you know, from the fields. When you speak to the guys, you ask them, what are your main concerns? And, and food is right up there. That's the case across Pakistan. We didn't get anything to eat or water, not even a tent. We are starving to death here. My parents are not here with me. We have young children with us, and there's nothing here to cook or eat. It's food, it's then it's safe drinking water, and it's access to healthcare. For the kids that are coming to our clinic, we screened 28,000 children, and 23% of them had severe acute malnutrition, which is an alarming statistic. We're months into the response now, and you would have anticipated, you know, that the support would have arrived on time to be able to, you know, meet the needs for this population. And it's the rest of the world that owes Pakistan that support. After the break, how it's measuring up so far. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. We carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. Excellencies, dear friends, thank you all for gathering in solidarity with the people of Pakistan. On the other side of the world, away from the stagnant water, the international community gathered in Geneva, Switzerland at the start of the year. Led by UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, they pledged foreign aid to help Pakistan rebuild. The United Nations is holding a major conference in Geneva. Dozens of countries and international organisations have pledged more than $9 billion to help aid Pakistan. Tamer Jagra, the former provincial minister we heard from earlier, is someone who attended that meeting. He's from the opposition party, the PTI, but he went to represent his province where his party held power during the floods. His party left the government in his province and others during a political dispute this February. You were recently in Geneva at a big meeting with the UN to talk about the floods and the recovery efforts. How did that meeting come about and why did you want to go? 
I actually wanted to make the case on behalf of the province to show the country, to the world, that we can both invest transparently and we are both putting our own front foot forward to help our own people, not just going in front of the world and asking for their help. I talked about what Khyber Pakhtunkhwa has actually done in both the long term, in the investments we have made. These sort of investments, I think, chart out a path to the world for how we can actually do a better job at flood response. So I wanted to go and tell that story. And while Taymor believes much of the world's attention when it came to the floods was on Sindh, he says it was important for him to highlight the ways in which his province was affected as well. I wanted to make sure that in a federation where different parts have been impacted, that people don't just hear about Sindh, that people don't just hear about Balochistan, that people hear about every part of Pakistan that has been affected. Taymor believes his local government was able to mitigate some of the devastation and that forward planning is key. He doesn't believe other regions, including Sindh, have done enough of it. We invested over the last three or four years in developing a rescue service in each of 35 districts of the province. This was a service that did not exist in the province before. The rescue services of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa got to 70,000 people on the day of the flood. You can't actually put a figure on the number of lives saved, but it'll run into thousands. Zuha says she can't speak to the efforts made in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, but she knows what's been done or not done in Sindh. Sindh has been horrific. The government of Sindh has been absolutely abysmal in terms of providing people with support and relief in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. So I live in Karachi, right? And I've read their response sheets for disaster and for urban flooding in Karachi. There's like two sentences in that entire management report for the province's largest city. And those are, we will clean the waterways and that's it. That's why the International Aid Conference in January was so crucial to help Pakistan. And Tamer says if money is going to come, it needs to come soon. Many people that you talk to say, look, the most important thing that you can do for me is whatever help that you can give me, give it now. Because over the next year, my life will be very different. My livelihood has been destroyed. The small crop that I had is no more. The cow that I own is no more. If you help me after a year, it makes very little difference to me. But if you help me now, even marginally, as the government, it makes a huge difference. And I think when you take the learning from that to what the international community is actually going to help Pakistan with, the same logic applies. The $10 billion is useless if it comes at the bureaucratic pace at which aid normally does. What we must do is to work together to find a way that we solve whatever concerns the world has, but to get this money to those that need it in Pakistan as quickly as possible, because that is when it actually makes a difference to the lives of those that need it. 
$9 billion was more than what was expected to be pledged from the conference. But Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has said it needs a minimum of 16.3 billion US dollars over the next three years. And MSF, where Ed Taylor works, says the current response to the crisis is inadequate. The humanitarian response hasn't yet scaled up. It hasn't scaled up to meet the needs. And you would have anticipated by now that we would have all organizations going to respond to the needs which I see as unmet at the moment. You know, people affected by the flood cannot continue to have their, you know, basic needs unaddressed. This is making people more vulnerable. Why do you think it's taken so long to get the aid going? I mean, you do this for a living. Does six months to scale up an aid operation seem like a long time to you? Yeah, we do need to see the response scale up. We also need to be treating this like an emergency response. That recovery and rebuilding is something that is necessary, and I would never say it's not. But, you know, when you're seeing figures like 50% positivity ratio in in your clinics for malaria and severely acute malnourished children, um, this is still definitely an emergency. Ultimately, though, Tamor doesn't believe foreign aid is a long-term solution. The Pakistani government has made a huge deal of the pledges that have come in. And yes, there are pledges that have come in. But I can't be proud of asking the world for money. If I have a need for the world to help finance me, I'm happy to do it because it is an obligation. But I want to be able to stand on my own feet. So I certainly don't buy the internal discourse that the government has been trying to sell as if this is some sort of economic achievement. To ask for aid is not an economic achievement. How much did climate change come up in the talks at that meeting in Geneva? It came up a lot. I think these 2022 super floods in Pakistan have actually dropped the penny for the entire world on what the actual impact of a large climate event can be when it hits a large country. They are what we position as once-in-a-lifetime events, but they won't be once-in-a-lifetime. These are going to hit countries like Pakistan again and again. And that's why we need to make sure that we build back in a way that we can deal with the next floods in a much better manner. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra and Amy Walters with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliay, Miranda Lynn and me, Halamahia Dean. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>